A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to Drive, BOF's new podcast series, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. When I think of Warby Parker, I think of the word disruption and how it took outsiders to disrupt a long-standing business model. The fact that uh, we were outsiders to the industry in a lot of ways, I think, was um, actually super helpful and beneficial because most people that we talked to that had years or decades of experience, their first reaction uh, was always to tell us why this idea would never work. Um, really, we were forging our, our own way and, and really thought about what's going to make most sense for our customers and the other stakeholders that, that we care about and the broader community that we wanted to positively impact. Purely from a business perspective, we feel like the bigger we get, the bigger the ultimate opportunity we see in front of us is. And uh, we feel like we're just scratching the surface in terms of what Warby Parker could become. For this episode, BOF's chief correspondent in New York, Lauren Sherman, sits down with founders Dave Gilboa and Neil Blumenthal to learn what it really takes to build a global fashion business from scratch. So thanks, guys, for being here. It's really nice to be in the Warby Parker Library. Thanks for having us. So I guess to start, before we get into Warby, can you talk a little bit about how you met and and how you guys know each other? 
Sure. Um, so uh, we met at, at business school, um, I think in, in the first week of school um, at Wharton, we were getting our MBAs and um, there's a month uh, really called preterm before school starts. And uh, we just became friends socially along with Jeff and Andy, our other two co-founders. And they talk a lot about, you know, there was always four co-founders or two co-founders and one goes away and you guys are the co-CEOs. What's going on with the other two co-founders now? Um, well, Jeff and Andy really haven't gone away. Yeah. <laughs> They're still two of our best friends. They're on the Warby Parker board of directors. Mm-hmm. Um, we were actually just texting with them, making plans for this weekend. Uh, Jeff uh, runs Harry's, uh, the, the razor business. Um, and Andy started a venture fund called Elephant Partners. So he's investing in uh, a lot of uh, Warby Parker-like companies. That's oh, very interesting. So you're in business school together. You're thinking about entrepreneurship a lot of people out of business school go into private equity or hedge funds or what have you what made you decide you wanted to start a business well I don't think any of us went to business school uh, with the idea that you know in the first month we're gonna meet good friends come up with an idea and start a business in fact um, I think people that may think that they're gonna immediately start a business in any walk of life is just unrealistic right you it off uh, good ideas don't come around that frequently um, and this was really happenstance the four of us were talking Dave had just lost a $700 pair of glasses in the seat pocket of an airplane he was traveling before school Jeff similarly um, had some glasses that he needed to replace but as a full-time graduate student wasn't about to go pay several hundred dollars Um, Andy posited the question why aren't people selling glasses online because all these other categories like shoes were moving online Zappos was popular uh, for the first time selling this category Blue Nile was selling engagement rings Um, and I had run a nonprofit social enterprise that trained low-income women to start their own businesses selling glasses in their communities uh, prior to business school and in doing so I had visited a lot of the factories where glasses were made and here I was producing glasses for people living in less than four dollars a day um, and ten feet away some of the biggest names in fashion were producing their glasses and you know we got to talking about this and it just didn't make sense why glasses were so expensive in the US had any of you worked at an eyewear company? We'd all been eyewear consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd been wearing glasses since I was 12 years old, uh, but I'd never stopped to think about kind of why uh, they were so expensive until um, I lost a pair of glasses. And then um, you know, I just bought uh, a new iPhone that cost $200, and I realized I was gonna, uh, the new pair of glasses I was going to have to buy cost several times that, and it just didn't make sense. And um, knew that Neil had done something in the eyewear space, and we were just getting to know each other. And so I started talking to him about why glasses were so expensive, and he became really animated and um, realized that um, through his experience of working at running uh, Vision Spring, this great nonprofit, that uh, he had a lot of expertise around the production of glasses, uh, knew a lot about the industry, and uh, that's really um, kind of when we were um, all talking as, as a group, when uh, the wheels started turning and, and kind of the, the seeds that, that ultimately led to, to Warby Parker um, started growing. So, so Neil, you had worked at Vision Spring, obviously, but no one in the company had worked kind of on the manufacturing or, or product side of the business, but you got to kind of know it better through that experience. 
Yeah. When, when I was at Vision Spring, you know, one of the things that we found was that people living on less than $4 a day in rural India and Bangladesh and parts of sub-Saharan Africa and Central America, uh, right, care just as much about how they look as somebody on Madison Avenue. Um, so I would actually go to the factories and uh, basically merchandise and assort and then eventually start to design sort of the glasses that I thought would sell best in these communities. So I learned a lot about that process and on this nonprofit's board of directors, you had um, some executives from uh, different optical companies, um, including one of the founders of Oliver Peoples. Um, so uh, that's how I learned a little bit about it. Uh, but it was really the four of us sort of, you know, digging in and um, sort of, uh, this is going to sound trite, but where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and we just spoke to as many different people as possible to learn every aspect uh, on how to run a business from logistics to marketing to product development um, to web design, you name it. And the fact that uh, we were outsiders to the industry in a lot of ways, I think was um, actually super helpful and beneficial because most people that we talked to that had years or decades of experience, um, their first reaction uh, was always to tell us why this idea would never work, that people wouldn't buy glasses online, that you had to have brands and licensing fees, and there's a reason why that there were, there were these middlemen and the there was a reason why the, the industry was set up the, the way it was. And so um, kind of coming at it from an outsider's perspective, uh, we didn't have these preconceived notions and we didn't have to operate within kind of this con- artificial construct that the industry had been created on and um, could really forge um, our own direction. And, and so uh, I think in a lot of ways, it, it probably would have been um, detrimental um, if we had deep experience in the industry coming in. You launched in 2010, right? We launched in February 2010 to features in Vogue and GQ, and the company just took off like a rocket ship. We hit our first year sales targets in three weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks, and had a wait list of over 20,000 people. Um, Those early days were uh, quite chaotic. So backing up and thinking about the actual business model, right now you ask any startup and so many of them will say we want to be the Warby Parker of mattresses we want to be the Warby Parker of jewelry we want to be the Warby Parker of socks or or what have you but back then there was no Warby Parker to model yourself off of so how did you guys kind of sketch out the business model and you know I know Tom's was doing buy a pair give a pair type thing but there's so many elements to the Warby Parker formula. How did you figure all of that out? And what did it look like during that first launch period? Yeah, so we spent a year and a half um, really working full time, architecting every element of the brand, every element of the business and realized that what we're doing was pretty complex. We were um, creating our brand, uh, our, our own brand. We were creating an e-commerce site, um, so we had to sell directly to consumers. We had to set up the supply chain. Making a pair of prescription glasses is particularly uh, complicated in that you, there's a prescription element, so there are doctors involved. Um, after a customer places an order, we have to custom manufacture the product for every individual customer, and we wanted to build in a social mission, and it was um, as important to us as founders to create an organization that did something good in the world and that had positive impact as it was to kind of create an innovative business. And so um, we, we had 
um, a lot of complexity in terms of all the, the pieces that we had to start, but also the messaging that we had to consumers and understanding, do people care about, you know, our buy a pair, give a pair program is something was um, really important to us as individuals and founders, and, and we wanted to help as many people as we could, but do people really care about that when they're buying a pair of glasses, um, or do they really care about speed or fashion and design or, or price and kind of how do we... Um, um, how do we force rank all those messages so it's not uh, confusing to, to consumers? And so we would have um, you know, sessions in one of our apartments. We were still full-time students working out of our apartments um, where we'd be writing on the window and have whiteboards and um, really debating intensely individual words that we were using to kind of describe ourselves. Um, every pixel that went on the website, none of us kind of had formal backgrounds in a lot of the things that, that we were doing, and including web design. And so, but we all knew how to use PowerPoint and so uh, we would mock up our website in PowerPoint and print out pages and take them to our friends or to a Starbucks and um, and put a stack of paper in front of people and say imagine this is a website where would you point if this was the home page and then they'd point somewhere on the page and we'd flip through the stack of papers and um, and then put another page in front of them and, and um, see where they'd point there and that was kind of our first UX testing and um, so there were kind of so many things that um, that we had to learn and we didn't have a lot of models in, in terms of other companies um, that we could um, really take inspiration from. We were really inspired by kind of some big companies like Patagonia that um, really had sustainability built into their ethos from Apple in terms of um, kind of their simplicity and design in, in UX, Nike from a brand perspective, Zappos from kind of customer service perspective. But um, really, we were forging our, our own way and, and really thought about what's going to make most sense for our customers and the other stakeholders that, that we care about, namely the environment, our employees that we would eventually hire um, and the broader community that we wanted to positively impact. So if you're really crafty, you can create a fashion, a, a set of fashion apparel samples for a few thousand dollars, especially if you sew them yourselves. I mean, some of them, a set could cost a hundred thousand, but you could do it for 5,000. But with what you guys were doing, making glasses and then part of the original model was that you shipped five pairs to the person's home right so they could try them on how did you come up with the capital how much capital did you have initially to actually implement that first launch so we thought that we could start this business with a hundred thousand dollars so the four of us committed twenty five thousand dollars each and then we sort of looked at each other and said well this might cost a bit more so let's all commit Uh, if we need to we'll each put an incremental 5000 on top of that. So we literally started Warby Parker with $120,000. Um, and the thing about starting a business um, is that you want to de-risk every part of it. So what more information um, do you need uh, to invest more time and energy into something? And we had gotten to a point where we felt like we could build a brand, we could design a collection we love, uh, but the question was really, would people buy glasses online? Um, and the only way to truly test that was to build a website and try and sell online. So with $120,000, we were able to um, design and produce our first collection of frames. So we had product to sell. We were able to uh, build a website. Um, and that's, you know, as Dave mentioned, was sort of uh, building very scrappy where we were doing all the wire frames, uh, even though we'd never built a website before. And then, you know, working with folks to actually code it. Um, and then the third thing is that even though this 
you know, could to some extent be considered a test, um, you only have one shot to launch a brand, um, and particularly in the fashion space. Um, so uh, we hired a PR firm um, to help us launch uh, with a bit of a splash. Um, and for us, it was important to get that credibility, and that's why we wanted to sort of launch in sort of a men's book like GQ and a women's book uh, like Vogue. Um, and it was really funny. We, you know, we been around the fashion industry, so uh, we understood it to some extent, but we were still pretty naive. Um, and uh, we were told that we were going to be in the March issue of GQ, um, and uh, you know, it was, uh, February one. And the website, like everything, was taking a little bit longer to yeah. uh, to um, to launch. Um, and we get a call from the fashion director um, the first of February, basically saying, "Hey guys, what's the deal? Um, you know, you guys are in the March issue. You got to get." this website up uh, you said it was going to be up a couple months ago uh, and we said oh don't worry we're working on it it will be up by March 1st um, and there was this pause on the phone and she was like you guys the March issue comes out in February you got to get this thing up um, and that was uh, yeah learning a little bit about uh, fashion press so we launched the website February 15th um, we didn't tell any of our friends um, this was right as uh, the March issue was hitting subscribers uh, doorsteps some of our friends started calling us to say hey you know your website's live and we were like, oh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, maybe click through it. And if there are any bugs, please let us know. Um, uh, but then it just uh, sort of took off uh, from there. So you sold out of everything very, very quickly, it sounds like. Did you start raising money immediately to keep it going? Because it just sounds like a very capital-intensive business. Am I am I right? And and I can't imagine you doing all of that stuff with one hundred twenty thousand dollars. So the most capital intensive part um, in those early days, um, in particular, because we weren't paying ourselves a salary, we didn't have an office, we weren't spending a penny on marketing. Um, really, we were funneling as much uh, money as we could into inventory. And uh, being a small, unknown business, uh, we really didn't have uh, any leverage with our suppliers. And so uh, they were demanding um, a significant portion of uh, any inventory payments up front by the time we placed an order. And the balance before they would ship and so um, we had to spend a lot of capital before we could generate any sales um, and but as soon as uh, we launched our website we started selling a lot of glasses and so there was actually cash coming through the door and we were funneling every penny of that back into additional inventory we had this wait list of 20,000 customers um, that we felt terrible that um, these early adopters these people who believed in us for the first time uh, that we were disappointing them and so uh, we wanted to work through that um, as soon as possible Uh, But at the same time, we had a really long-term vision for the business, and we wanted to make sure that um, we kept control of of that vision and and also kept control of the ownership of of the company. Um, And a few of us on uh, the founding team had worked in uh, consulting or banking or or finance and had seen scenarios where investors are not necessarily aligned with management teams, and that can create a lot of conflict. Um, And so... Um, we wanted to have as much leverage as possible by the time we raised outside funding. Um, and so we were incredibly scrappy um, in those early days. Uh, Neil instituted a policy that no one in the company could buy a pen uh, because we could go to our local TD bank and they had free pens there. Those are some great pens. They are. And lollipops. They had free lollipops too, mm. which was nice. 
And uh, we really tried to delay raising external capital for as long as possible until we had more momentum, until we had more leverage, um, until we um, could be in more control over those fundraising discussions. So it was about a year and a half post-launch that we actually raised our first capital. Um, and I think it's a testament to uh, the faith that investors have had in us, but also the success that we were having that we were able to dictate terms with investors of the fact that all four of us founders are still on the board of directors, right? And, and that we've been able to maintain control and that we've been able to sort of cherry pick the absolute best investors um, and surround ourselves with people that really want to help us build a brand for the next hundred years um, and not folks that are looking for a short-term uh, return in you know five to seven years for example and those constraints of not having any capital forces creativity and so we didn't pen- we didn't spend a penny on Facebook ads or any kind of ads um, uh, for our first two and a half years that we we're in business and I think it can become easy um, now we see a lot of startups that raise a lot of capital even before they launch, and um, it can be easy to kind of get addicted to, to growth um, by, by paying for that growth. And for us, that, that was never an option. And so we just had to focus on offering the best possible customer experience. We viewed our customers as our best marketing channel and really tried to think about how we can drive as much word of mouth as possible and how can we leverage um, kind of existing audiences, particularly through press, um, that would continue to get the word out, but without us having to pay for it. And I think that enabled us to tell our, our story really authentically and, um, and uh, develop um, a really um, fervent uh, following from those people that learned about us, um, either through their friends that had a great experience or read about um, our story in a publication that they trust. How do you keep that up now? I was talking to a factor the other day who loans money typically to fashion brands so that they can produce a collection or manufacture something. And now they're loaning money to fashion brands for marketing online to acquire customers. And when, when you guys started, Facebook was, I'm assuming the Facebook ad wars were not as crazy as they are now. You probably could get a lot of marketing done on Facebook for free. Vogue, GQ, however still great, are not the only way to to market your business now and perhaps don't drive the same kind of sales. How do you guys do it now and keep it feeling authentic when you're doing a mix of paid advertising and, and organic earned media? I think, you know, for one thing, for our paid advertising, right, how do we make sure that the key messages are, are coming through, um, that the brand is represented by its key attributes, by about fun, creativity, doing good in the world, um, you know, and f- through everything else that we do, how do we make Warby Parker something that people want to discuss at the dinner table? Uh, whereas as we scale, that word of mouth is still a core part of our customer acquisition strategy. Um, so this year, for example, we've launched uh, two new sort of products. Um, one is Prescription Check. It's an app that people can download and do a vision test remotely from their home or office, and then we can send them uh, a valid eyeglasses prescription. Like that, that's pretty cool technology um, that is unexpected that people do want to talk about, um, but it, it 
makes people's lives easier, right? They don't have to take time off of work, um, pay a lot to go have an eye exam. Um, and if we keep doing things like that, that make customers' lives easier, we can keep that word of mouth. Another example is that uh, we were the, one of the first brands uh, to use the iPhone X's true depth camera. Um, and on our Warby Parker you know, e-commerce app, um, you can scan your face and we can recommend frames um, uh, for you. And where did this come from? These two products came from two customer pain points. Uh, one is not having valid prescriptions and it being inconvenient to take time off of work to get a uh, go get an eye exam, um, and the second is that you know it's often difficult to pick out the right pair of glasses. Um, most people buy prescription glasses once every two years. We hope people do it a lot more frequently than that, but they're not uh, great at buying glasses. So we want to make it as easy as possible. And if you think back to why Warby Parker was started in the first place, it was to solve a customer pain point to solve a real problem, our own problem of walking into an optical shop, getting excited about a pair of glasses or sunglasses, and then walking out feeling like we got ripped off. Um, so at the end of the day, if we keep solving customer problems, we'll be able to continue to grow. So when I, I think about your business, the two biggest challenges to me from the outside would be that there are just a few conglomerates that run eyewear and I'm sure they're doing everything they c in their power either to buy you or or make you go away. And then <laughs> the other bit is the fact that there have been a lot of Warby Parker knockoffs outside of the U.S. in particular, but I have even seen a couple businesses recently that have emerged that are kind of trying to do what you do, but even maybe go a little lower in price. How have you managed to combat those two issues, kind of the the little guys trying to knock you off and the big guys trying to, you know, quiet you down? Yeah, so um, at this point we've had hundreds of copycats, um, yeah. both here in the U.S. and, uh, and abroad. And um, most of those companies have actually gone out of business. Um, and I think they've underestimated how challenging can be, it can be to build a brand. Um, and um, also um, how uh, complex um, some of the operational issues uh, around um, custom producing prescription glasses, um, that it, uh, there are a lot of the things um, that our team does on a daily basis to ensure that customers are happy, to ensure that um, orders are, are produced the right way and delivered um, in, in a timely fashion that um, are um, much more complex than they appear on the surface. Um, and so, and I think just derivative brands that are just kind of at clear copycats are, are not interesting. And there's so much uh, noise in the world today um, that consumers are constantly bombarded by so many uh, different elements that unless there's something really unique or interesting, um, it's not something that people want to talk about. It doesn't spread through word of mouth. It's not something editors want to uh, feature. Um, and so I think a lot of those uh, kind of derivative brands have had a hard time uh, kind of gaining attention. Um, now there are some um, internationally that um, in areas that we haven't, um, uh, we've chosen not to, to go into yet um, that um, are gaining a little bit of traction, but, uh, but certainly no one with, with a lot of scale. You know, in terms of the, the really big companies um, like Luxottica and Essilor, the two biggest um, companies in the world that um, have recently announced that they're merging, um, you know, their playbook has really been one of um, 
uh, keeping high prices, high margins, um, and leveraging their scale. And they're continuing to do that um, as evidenced by um, their merger instead of really focusing on innovation and competing directly with us. And, and so uh, we expect that they'll continue on that playbook. Um, and there's gonna be a huge white space opportunity for, for us. Um, it's a massive industry. There's not gonna be kind of one company, one winner takes all. Um, and uh, we think we offer the best product for the uh, for the uh, the best value, and and that will continue to be the case, um, even though there will be um, options at lower price points and higher price points. We were very deliberate in that we wanted to offer a product that was a fraction of the price of what you would typically pay in an optical shop, but we didn't want to compete on price. Um, and even before we launched, there were you know a bunch of sites that were selling um, cheaper glasses that. Um, we think that customers have to sacrifice on quality and customer experience and design and, and, and brand. And, and we wanted to launch um, a, a product, a set of products where um, customers got a great deal, but um, they weren't sacrificing anything. Um, and we still see massive opportunity in front of us to uh, just continue to, to focus on our customers and, and not really be worried about um, what, what any competitors are doing. This podcast is delivered by DHL. As the logistics partner of many of fashion's biggest and most prestigious businesses, DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Now present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL has decades of expertise in logistics and is the world's leading partner for the fashion, jewelry, and lifestyle industries, delivering over 1 billion parcels each year. Drawing on its entrepreneurial expertise, DHL offers tailored logistics solutions suitable for any fashion business, from emerging designers to established global mega brands to independent stores, e-commerce giants, and direct-to-consumer startups. For more information about DHL, visit DHL.com. So you've you raised that first round of capital a year and a half in. You've since raised a a good amount of money. Remind me of how much exactly? Two hundred and ninety million dollars. Two hundred and ninety million dollars. <laughs> so it's it's a lot of money. That makes your valuation extremely high. So you you've raised two hundred ninety million dollars at this point. You waited a while, a year and a half. It's been eight years. So you've raised a few times over that that period. What was that first round? What did you use that for? And, and what are you using the funding that you raised? It, it was the, earlier this year, right? To, to fuel. I'm, ass, I'm assuming it's usually to fuel growth. That's, that's the good situation, right? That you're not bandaging anything. You're, you're growing. Exactly. We're uh, really using that capital to invest in the future. Um, so um, a lot of that is to invest in some of the technologies that, that we were mentioning. So um, we filed a bunch of patents around our prescription check technology, right, where we're issuing people uh, prescriptions remotely. Um, we've now actually filed a bunch of design patents when it comes to eyewear design. We've been building out um, a bunch of stores. So it's exciting that we now have 70 stores. We'll have 90 by the end of the year. Uh, we never anticipated opening a single store. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, um, right, we our model has always been around delivering exceptional uh, customer service and exceptional value. And the way that we were doing that is cutting out the middleman. So not wholesaling our product to a retailer who would mark it up, but by designing and producing product and selling it directly 
the internet and e-commerce was the cheapest and easiest way to have that direct relationship with customers, but stores is equally direct. Um, and what we're finding is that, you know, different strokes for different folks. Some customers want to uh, shop uh, and transact purely online, some in stores, some a combination of both. In fact, the vast majority a combination of both. Um, so we've been using that capital um, to uh, really uh, create some long-term bets here. Um, what's great now is that um, we've seen real leverage in the business and we're now profitable. What was the moment when you knew you had to open a store? Was there a turning point? Was it that growth wasn't picking up as much online? Or when did you realize, okay, we're actually going to have to do this? Because a lot of digital brands, especially when you guys were launching or that launched right after you kind of said, I'm never opening a store, I'm never opening a store. And most of them have open stores. So when, when did you realize, oh, we are going to have that? part of the business be a part of ours too? For us, it was really a natural evolution of our, our brand. And we never thought of ourselves as an e-commerce company. We always thought of ourselves as, as a brand first. And we happened to launch using e-commerce because it was more capital efficient. And um, right, we'd bootstrapped the business. There was no landlord in the country that would have felt comfortable um, signing a lease to us. We just didn't have um, the, the balance sheet or the credit to be able to sign a, a 10-year lease and wouldn't have been able to afford a build-out. And um, so um, e-commerce was a way for us to, to reach our, our customers um, more efficiently. But as Neil was describing, as soon as we launched, we were um, overwhelmed by demand, completely stocked out of inventory. We had this home try-on program that we were super excited about that uh, we were completely stocked out in 48 hours of all our uh, frames. And so we started getting calls from strangers all over uh, Philly, where we were based at the time, uh, saying, I read about you in GQ, read about you in Vogue, uh, would love to come. Uh, you know, there's a huge wait list. I want to try on the glasses. Can I come to your store? And we said, well, the store is Neil's apartment, but come on over. <laughs> and um, we just laid out the glasses on the dining room table. And um, we found that people loved the experience. They loved getting to meet the people behind the brand. They loved getting to try on the entire collection. And we learned so much from those face-to-face -face interactions about which frames that people were drawn to um, that they picked up, but then uh, realized that they actually didn't, didn't fit them well. Um, we got a lot of just great feedback about um, everything from uh, web design to product design uh, to what people were looking for. And uh, then when we graduated, we moved to our first office uh, here in New York. We were on 16th Street uh, on the sixth floor of a commercial building with no signage. And uh, we dedicated a couple hundred square feet to a customer showroom. And all of a sudden, we had hundreds of people a day coming into that showroom. We were making millions of dollars in sales um, from uh, from effectively a store within an office. And um, and then that kind of any time that we had a physical environment for people to walk into, we experimented with some pop-up shops. We bought an old yellow school bus that we gutted and turned into a store and that toured the country um, uh, as a mobile store. And we found that we got a great response from, from customers. And so it was a natural evolution where we had um, so many data points um, from these experiments that it just made sense for us to then um, sign a 10-year lease uh, in Soho on Princeton Green on um, you know, one of the most expensive uh, blocks in, uh, in New York or in, in the country. But we had enough data that we were confident that the economics were going to make sense and it was going to be great for the brand and great uh, for, for our customers. And it uh, wildly 
blew out our expectations um, that that first store in terms of sales and profitability and um, and so that gave us the confidence to then open a few more and a few more and uh, now we have um, 71 stores we'll be at 90 by the end of the year and and really see physical retail as um, as a, a big driver of growth and profitability for the business it's interesting I feel like a Warby Parker store is now an indicator of a cool retail neighborhood and and i think a lot of there are a lot of fast followers following you guys into certain places how do you manage that so if it's not a brand that you think is cool or you want to be connected to um that's a tough one i thought you were going to ask how can we invest in real estate (laughs) yeah i mean it's all about real estate right that's the real business you know um i think because we started online and we view ourselves as the inner at the intersection of fashion and design um uh tech sort of startup world um social enterprise and increasingly um healthcare with with our prescription check app um we take a lot of the dna from the tech startup world and when you're writing software uh you're doing so on literally like a daily basis um and the nice thing about software is that uh it's very flexible right you can change a piece of code uh you can change something on a website in a couple seconds the challenge with bricks and mortar retail is that things are very inflexible you sign long term leases, you spend a lot of money on build outs. Um, But our thought is, how do we inject some of that flexibility into our bricks and mortar strategy? So that way, if we are going into a neighborhood that that's not known for retail, but it does super well, um, but then for some reason stops doing well, that we can leave and go someplace else. So um, we tend to sign shorter term leases than most large retailers. Uh, We try and design our stores in a modular way. um, So that way, if we want to make changes to the layout, which we're doing constantly because we're learning, um, then we're able to do that. Um, So it's really about flexibility. So so you've been doing this for eight years, you're a really big company. You're you're just growing bigger and bigger. Not so big. (laughs) Big big for a lot of the companies I cover. But um, what was the what has been the hardest part of all of this, especially midway through? I'm assuming there have been some really big challenges. What have they been, and how have you gotten over those hills? I think the uh, majority of Neil and my job now is really all people focused and Mm -hmm. um, just thinking about just ensuring that uh, we're attracting the most talented people in the world uh, to the company, uh, that we're organizing uh, the team in such a way that allows people to have impact, that we're letting the people that are closest to our customers, closest to data, that they're empowered to make decisions. Um, and you know, I think there uh, is a natural evolution in kind of any founder's journey where it becomes difficult to let go of certain things. Um, right when we were uh, it was just the the four of us working out of our apartments, we were uh, doing you know, literally doing everything in in the business. And um, and then you hire people, and you hire people that are better than you in certain aspects. Um, there are. Um, I think growing pains uh, with uh, any organization and and how do we um, ensure that we're investing enough in people and training and when do you need to bring in experienced leaders uh, for certain functions versus kind of investing in um, those early employees that are super talented and are figuring things out um, as they go but um, but you know haven't haven't done uh, what we're asking them to do before and so um, I think 
you know, most of the, the challenges that we've had are um, thinking about, you know, do we need to um, kind of create a new department? Do we need to bring in a senior leader for uh, this new uh, task that we're, uh, that we're taking on? You guys seem to work really well together in terms of finishing each other's sentences and kind of being totally in sync. How how do you guys manage your your co CEOs? So how do you manage that relationship? Uh, <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. But <laughs> um, Dave buys me nice dinners. Uh, we we sit next to each other. Um, so we communicate super frequently. We text, we call, uh, you know, half of, um, I think relationship management is communication. Um, and, uh, we dedicate time to sit down, talk through priorities for the business, um, uh, give each other feedback, uh, make sure that both uh, of us are really informed. Um, and I think that's for a few different reasons. Uh, one is so that way we can make good decisions. Um, second is so that way as our team gets bigger we don't want someone coming to one of us and mom saying no and then going to dad um, and I think the third thing is uh, that continues to build trust um, I mean human nature is often uh, to assume the worst in people and um, having transparent communication right helps uh, mitigate all of that um, and uh, we also value each other's uh, you know brains um, and I know that if I'm uh, so Sort of thinking through something, uh, right? I, want, I immediately want to talk to Dave and hear what his thought uh, is. Uh, and if it's similar to mine, that's very reassuring. Um, often he adds to it, makes it a, a lot better. Um, and that makes for a really healthy partnership. Mm. So, down to business, international. I know you get asked this question all the time. Is it logistics? What What is the reason you haven't gone international? And when do you foresee it happening? Because I'm assuming it will happen at some point. Yeah, one of the reasons that I think we've had success to date um, is that we've stayed really focused. Um, and we tell our team that strategy is what we say no to. And it can be really easy to chase new shiny objects or chase growth. And that can work in the short term. Um, but it tends to... Um, uh, diffuse organizational focus and and that can lead to a lot of negative issues down the road and we've seen so many brands and so many companies um, that have tried to expand internationally before they are ready and um, have come to regret it um, either because they're out of business or retreating from those countries or realize that um, they really weren't set up for success um, and same thing with launching other product categories or kind of chasing chasing growth I think we feel fortunate that we operate in a really big industry and that's why we were attracted to this space in, in in the business opportunity in the first place. Um, Iwear is over $100 billion globally, but um, over a third of that market is in the US, and so we still have a ton of room to, to run here. And we also have a very long timeline, uh, time horizon. We want Orby Parker to be one of the most impactful brands in the world 100 years from now. Um, and uh, so we, we definitely have global ambitions, but we feel like we have time to get there, and, and we want to do it on our own terms, not just because there um, is some um, copycat that launches in country XYZ, uh, but we should be um, ready to, uh, to enter these markets and do so in a big way. Um, and we will get there, but uh, just don't, don't feel any urgency right now. 
And I think sort of if you were to look back at what lifestyle brands tended to do a few decades ago, right, they were primarily wholesale businesses. So uh, they were really sort of product designers, right, or apparel designers, and then they could wholesale that any place in the world. It, it, it didn't introduce that much complexity. Um, but we don't necessarily view ourselves as just eyewear designers. We view ourselves as uh, retail designers, um, digital designers. Uh, brand designers, ultimately ex experience designers. Um, and we want um, that holistic customer experience to be phenomenal. Um, and to do that right, right, takes a lot of time and energy and, and mind share. Um, so when it's time to do that, we're going to dedicate the r proper resources. And it's not just capital, right? It's the mind share of, of senior leadership to do something really well. Uh, so that way we have as much success everywhere else in the world as we've had uh, in the U.S. So you talked quite a bit about what was driving you in the beginning to launch this. The series is called Drive. <laughs> um, what is driving you now? What is keeping you in the office every day trying to get to the next level? What What's the Warby Parker thing that is keeping you here and keeping you engaged and excited about what's next? Yeah, so purely from a business perspective, we feel like the bigger we get, the bigger the ultimate opportunity we see in front of us is. And uh, we feel like we're just scratching the surface uh, in terms of what Warby Parker could become um, uh, only in the U.S., uh, not to mention uh, that global opportunity. And so um, there is just a, a ton of, of, of room for us to, to continue to grow and execute on what we're already doing well um, and then layer in additional innovations, whether that is using telemedicine to make Make it easier, faster, cheaper for people to get new prescriptions. Uh, thinking about new product introductions, expanding the uh, the number of stores, the number of customers that we're touching. There's there's so much more that we feel like we have uh, we can do, and and we're best positioned to do. Um, and so we feel a lot of responsibility um, on that. And um, and our our customers are telling us that what we're doing um, is great, and they're super satisfied. And and we feel like we're putting. Um, great products um, on people's faces and, and putting money in their pocket. And so that, that feels good. But the other uh, element is around our social mission. And, and that's why we wanted to build that into the business from day one um, so that as the company gets bigger, um, our impact uh, gets bigger. And through our buy a pair, give a pair program, we've now distributed over 4 million pairs of glasses to people in need around the globe. And um, as we scale that uh, that program scales and uh, that is really motivating to us and our team and is the number one uh, reason that people um, want to work here and, and want to uh, work really hard here. And so, um, and, and that's just one aspect of um, our social mission. We've started a couple programs here in the U.S. called Pupils Project where in New York and Baltimore, we're going into schools, um, working um, with uh, government agencies uh, and other nonprofits to administer eye exams in those schools. And um, and for any uh, child that needs glasses, we're providing them for free. We estimate that there are 200,000 uh, school children in New York City public schools alone that need glasses that don't wear them, um, and don't have access to them. And, and uh, we want to make sure that that number goes to zero. And so it feels like they're in kind of everything that we're doing we're um uh, we feel like we're having impact but we could have a lot more impact and and that's super motivating yell and dave thank you so much for being here it was great to hear your story thanks thank for you. having us
Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to hear more episodes and give us a rating and email us at podcast at businessoffashion.com with any questions or guest suggestions. To learn more about BOF, click on the description notes in this episode. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community, which keeps you up to date with everything you need to know about the global fashion industry. For a limited time only, we are offering our BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF professional membership. So to get 25% off your first year of a BOF professional membership, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special discount code PODCAST2018 at checkout. That's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 